This is a HeadGum Podcast. Yay, another episode of Enemies. My name is Lisa Traeger. Thank you for joining us. Another jam-packed episode. I hope you enjoyed speaking to my best friend, Julia Olson. She was actually in town this weekend. Um, We went to the Nope screening on Friday, and I'm actually going to the premiere today as I record this. It had already been happened. I do have a small part in the movie, so go on Friday. Um, It's a very small part, but I'm very, very excited about it. So I'm thrilled. It's an honor to be in a Jordan Peele vehicle. Um, and the acting of everyone is so good. And um, yeah, send me a little, you could take a photo of the credits. I'm in there, baby. Um, but uh, so she was in town. We did some pools. Wildly, the hotel we were staying at was filming Vanderpump Rules. So we got to, we ate some mushrooms with our friends and we watched them film Vanderpump Rules. And then my two friends became friends with production and then they were feeding us gossip. And it was, um, a lovely time. I went to great restaurants. It was, it's a very strange time. You know, my friends are here. I feel loved. Everything is like so beautiful. I'm leaving to Montreal tomorrow. I'll already be in Montreal as you're listening to this. I'm I'm assuming everyone listens to the day it comes out, right? Am I just, are you my aunt? My mom, I'm filling you in about my schedule. So the intros are now my schedules. I also I knew I shouldn't smoke weed I have so much to do I'm like laundry packing getting ready therapy then the premiere then I have a 5 30 a.m flight but nothing matters nothing is important and everything has been numbed and weird um a friend Jack Knight an incredible comedian fun person such a swell good dude but I am like to me, he was Bart Simpson, I always say. And I actually hung out with a friend this weekend and she also called him Bart Simpson and um, just like loved to see him, loved to interact with him, loved having drinks with him, loved weed, loved listening. I loved watching his comedy and it um, it's just really sad. And it is also sad how life moves on, um, you know, how. I had a spot and not for everyone. And I'm thinking of all the people that were so, so close to him and his best friends and his family. And I'm just like thinking about all of them and their sadness. But um, if you want to laugh, please watch some Jack Knight. Um, He has a Netflix special, like part of the conglomerates. Um, His TV show with his really good friends, Bust Down. He was a writer on this pause Sam Jay's show and he wrote on big mouth. He was Devon in big mouth. He did the voice. Um, he was so it's, um, just so talented and so fun. And I, um, cherish the moments that I had with him and it's just very fucked up. And then it's like, but your friend, you're still doing things. And then it's like, when can it's, it's strange. And I'm sure everyone, um, not everyone, hopefully you've never dealt with anything like this, but it's a true tragedy and, um, call people, call people when you want to don't wait. My heart goes out to everyone that is ever dealing with grief. But, um, so it's like strange dichotomy, like, I'm still going and doing these things and laying at a pool. And then the back of my mind is like true sadness. Um, And 
Sorry to loop you in on so much. You know, you're just trying to listen to a podcast. Um, but that is what is happening. And so please um, take some time and learn about Jack Knight and his work. Um, and take care of yourselves. Um, today's episode. See, it's weird transitions. It's just like strange transitions um, from sad to life and moving and doing things and knowing that there are people that are debilitated right now feeling for everybody um this is an appropriate episode i would say um you know we're not gonna like jump into like two roommates fighting about you know lipstick or something we have a a man I know, boo, JK, uh, Jamie Green. He is um, like a coach, mentor, was a therapist for many decades. Um, and, you know, he's fancy. He does work with executives, rich people. He's been on The Bachelorette. Um, and the insights he gave me are gems I will remember for a long time. I'm so grateful he made time to come on this show I I had to I was forced to reflect about myself um he answered so many good questions well did I just compliment myself no but um just very insightful um such great poignant points and information that he shared and skills and um I really enjoyed talking to Jamie and he did have a heart out so it's it's jam packed it's like an hour of boom 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 help our lives um and his you know I'm just on his website I'm going to say that the truth is that life is not an endurance test and that's true yeah you don't have to be miserable and um, the goal of life is more than merely to survive it is to experience personal freedom through the expression of our unique talents I like it are you guys um are you guys into it intrigued so we're gonna start it's Jamie Green and his big philosophy is the off the couch program and um I really enjoy talking to him in a way that I was it's weird to say surprised or shocked by I obviously wanted him on this show and was and knew but a lot of things hit me in a super deep level. So I hope you guys um, enjoy Jamie Green. I hope I did not bum you out too much. But sharing my truth, I am sitting in my underwear, avoiding all of life. Um, no, I'm yeah. Enjoy Jamie Green. Thank you so much. Why did I do that at the end? Jamie Green, hello. Hi, how are you? Thrilled to have you here. Psychotherapist, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Now more of a life coach. You wanted to get in there. Um, and if I look to the side, I have some questions. You know, I'm right. not like veering off into the distance or anything. Okay. Now, are the rumors true? Like, are therapists the wildest? You know, you do hear that therapist kids are the craziest. Like, how many of... Like, do you, are you friends with lots of therapists? And what do you think about that stereotype? Uh, no, I think I don't have nothing to do with therapists. I think they're the most boring, shut down, repressed people on the planet, to be honest. And um, they're not crazy. They're just um, very heady. Most therapists, I mean, like, I'm grossly oversimplifying. Therapists are very, very heady. If you think about what draws people to becoming therapists, it's a lot of trauma they have usually not resolved, actually. 
hopefully in the process of becoming a therapist, they do the work to get really clear on that, right? So I'm not trying to diss all therapists. It's just, no, I think therapists are like everybody else. It's just, it's easy for therapists to hide behind a mask of being a therapist. And it's very important that therapists have a place to do their own really deep inner work along the way. I think that's just vital. Then you can really walk the walk and you can really feel where people are. Because you've been there. Absolutely. Well, because, you know, I'm a stand-up comedian and people always say that comics are like the craziest. But I feel like we just get to be more open about us ourselves. You know, like we can talk about how crazy we are, but if you're a teacher, you might not be able to do that. Right. What are your thoughts about well, I'm, I'm the comics? Kind of, look, I, was tra- I went through phases, right? I was trained very okay. seriously in a very psychoanalytic environment where I saw people <clears throat> behind the couch a couple of times a week. I was a very young man doing that. I had no business doing it, but I was trained that way and it was freaking boring. I don't think it really... Oh, people are, 10 years later, I'm like, enough of this. Let's get off the couch. My coaching company is called Off the Couch Consulting. It's a different conversation. But the difference between therapy and coaching, because when I made that transition 14 years ago, it was not hip at all. People were not doing that. Suddenly, I'm making house calls. That was unheard of. Everyone's a freaking coach today, right? Yes. With no zero credentials, zero qualifications. When I made that transition, what I loved about it, what I didn't realize until I stepped away from an office setting, how much I was getting burned out by sitting in an office day in day out that it wasn't being working with people people are great most of them um a little crazy but great um to me it was just sitting in office so the idea of the the way i would describe it to people because it was a very very unprecedented thing for therapists to turn into a coach doing like doing house calls right what i would say in in a kind of kitsch way was imagine i'm doing emotional feng shui right so instead of schlepping the furniture around and putting dots in the in the corners i'm just changing your perspective of consciousness that's obviously, it wasn't really my brand, but that people got it immediately. I'm coming in. What's great as a therapist is you get in, you get to really feel people when you're in the trenches in their homes, you actually get to feel the vibe. Yeah, they can't lie. Right. And they don't resist to not show up because you're showing up on their freaking doorstep. So all those things are game changers. So yeah, the coaching thing is just less, look, what I've learned over the years, people get very obsessed with their stories. It's kind of what you're alluding to. People are married to their stories. And it's very easy to indulge that in a certain style of therapy where you just very patiently listen and let them tell the stories for a decade and nothing's changing. They do feel very heard and contained and understood. But what I think we're selling them down the road. People need intervention. They need tools. They need to get the shit smacked out of the pot, metaphorically speaking. Right? They need some tools. Yeah, big time. And they need direction and they need... Uh, uh, they need personal disclosure. Like one of the things I would always do as a therapist once I moved out of that psychoanalytic phase was, was share my own experience because it's helpful not to burden the client, not overly burden, but I think people want to know there's hope, what it looks like to move through really difficult stuff and come on the other side and, and be able to survive to tell the tale and then give people the guidance and tools and modeling what it looks like. That's what coaching is. I actually call it mentoring. I don't call it therapy or coaching, actually. I call it mentoring because I think that's more honestly what it is. I'm also a man of 57, so I've got a lot of experience to mentor with. I didn't at 24, so I couldn't have done it then, right? That was traditional therapy. Well, okay. yeah, with therapy, you do have to follow a lot of rules. So with mentoring, like you're saying, you do, per- you know, you can do personal chats. You can actually tell right. people what to do. Yeah, well, you rules. Can do that. It's not rules. You can do that in therapy too. It's a certain style. As a mm-hmm. psychoanalytic therapist, you're certainly not doing any of the self-disclosure. But that's why yeah. I thought it was just very trite and flat and not very authentic. I just, I'm about, and I received that kind of analysis and therapy and I thought they were like robots. So the first therapist that really 
kind of got my attention was someone just really freaking real and honest and direct. I appreciated that. It's more relatable. Now, how many full-blown socio-psychopaths where you see them and you're they're like dead behind the eyes? I have a couple friends, they call it shark eyes. Um, how many people that you're just like, no, you're a psycho? Um, I would say more personal relationships than clients. I, w- I don't take anybody on like that. I'm, I'm, I'm very, since I was starting out, very intuitive about who I'm taking on. So I need people who are motivated, real, very clear about what they're doing. I don't take on sociopaths. I used to date them. Kind of stayed away from that now, but no, okay. I, I don't take on the crazies. I don't take on the crazies. Did you date sociopaths? Yes. Okay. And um, cool. what do you think drew you to those types of people? Um, well, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I didn't realize I was dating a sociopath, but to be fair. Of course. But I, I think they're very charismatic. They... Um, they keep you on your toes. They keep it interesting. They're a little bit emotionally unavailable. It, de- it depends on, I'm, you know, there's the anxious avoidant types. That's not me. I, I was way more the codependent type. So we need a mission. We need to try to find someone to, you know, get some love out of them. Basically, that's the attraction until you realize it's the most ridiculous mission. Then you give it up and then you find available people. It takes a while. Yeah. So what, um, what can you do? I'm trying to think how to ask this. Mm-hmm. What are the qualities you have to work within yourself to not crave sociopathic attention? That's a great question. Well, look, it's about becoming emotionally available. So what does that mean? That's nothing to do with logistics and being single. That has to do with, I don't think there's any way to avoid um, confronting one relationship with oneself. We have to kind of find the good stuff within us, let's say, and have some compassion around who we are. We have to find our self-worth. Most people struggle with a bit of self-esteem and self-worth issues. That's just the nature of the beast. So, you know, it's kind of like not deflecting, not avoiding, not running away, embracing a little bit of our shadow side and learning about who we are, being comfortable in our own skin, being comfortable in our own company. It takes a little bit of that. Otherwise, we're just looking to be taken out of that in the drama relationship or someone else. And that's where the, the kind of narcissistic, sociopathic, let alone a bit borderline. We should talk about that. That's a common theme for women that men attract. There's a lot of intensity in that. There's a lot of deep feelings in that, right? It gets you very hooked. You get engaged in it. So how do you get, how do you move away from that? When you're in a place of being really good with who you are, you don't need a mission. You actually want a partner that can show up. Yeah. What if the way you view yourself is not the way the world views you? What if you're comfortable in who you are, but people are like, I don't really like it. <laughs> you know what no, I mean? No, not really. What do you mean? Then, then, then why would one ask the question? If I'm fine with me and you're not, fuck you, right? What difference? It's only if, look, I, I would say it's this way. The, the, the ability to be able to um, correct the distorted, this is a very common thing. A lot of people have very distorted ideas about who they are. That's true. So the only way that you start to clear up those distortions, I believe, is having a very um, um, sincere community of people around you. Let's call it an inner, an inner sanctum of two or three friends, let alone if you had a big community. And what happens is, because I'm a big community builder, not just in the men's work, but I've done a lot of community building. I'm all about it. Um, when a bunch of people who are mirroring a very different reflection about how they experience this than we do, it's either a conspiracy, right? Or 
there's something to be said about how come I'm being experienced externally very differently than the way I see myself. That's when it starts to get confronted, hopefully in all good ways. If what you're saying is it's like an intervention where people are saying I'm an asshole and I don't think I'm an asshole, I don't care that you think I'm an asshole because I'm fine being. So it depends on which angle. I would say it's very helpful when we have a low image of ourselves and we get to be kind of like surprisingly built up by the people around us. That's helpful because, all right, we trust them. They're sincere. They're not working us. That's good news. But if I'm really a dick and people are telling me I do and I think I'm great, that's going nowhere. Now, um, you know, I watched the video you have on your on your website and you mentioned going into the executive's office, you're there, and you said you deal with their ego and narcissism. Yeah. Do you have to be a narcissist to be an executive? No, of course not. Of course not. Um, but it helps. It helps. No, it doesn't. No, no, no. I don't. No, I'm, I'm, is it common? Yeah. I guess like, yeah, so why common. is it common? It's I guess. common because executives become executives at high levels because they're powerful people, they're charismatic, and they're very stubborn, and they're very firm, and most people don't confront them. What I've always appreciated about the, the, the execs I work with is they let me in and I really nail them with the truth. Wait, and I do it with love. Once it's a bit of and are they surprised when you're like, you're a narcissist yeah. asshole? Are they like, oh my God. No, you don't tell a narcissist or a narcissist. <laughs> okay. You just nail them with the truth. Like what I'll often do is, um, look, remember something. I'm not court appointed and they're not court ordered. So why am I in front of them? They're asking for something whether it's about a marriage. You know, I, I, I don't do a lot of executive coaching where I'm doing team building for the companies. I used to do that. I'm not into that. It's really boring to me, to be honest. No, I assumed you were working yeah. with the narcissist I'm doing, executives. I'm doing, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing, I'm dealing with the individuals who happen to be business related or I'm seeing them in the business setting or once they do trust me and I've helped them, they want me to work with their management team. That happens a lot, okay? To me, what I appreciated about the way I was mentored and I got help was, especially in the men's work, is that the truth is, will set you free, man. It really will. It's uncomfortable to be given a blind spot. But if you trust it's coming from care and not arrogance and judgment, it stings, but it resonates. So executives are smart, most of them. Not about presidents, but executives are smart. So when you have someone there and you really bring something to them that no one's had the guts to bring to them, they appreciate it. And how many further. sessions does it take to get to a place where you say this to these people, or do you pin them pretty quickly? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it in the first hour with them for sure. You do. Yeah, because I know it's also an audition. I'll probably do it on the phone in a in yeah. two But no, I, I look. You, you, you. I am very different now than I was when I trained as a therapist in those first ten years because I didn't confront anyone. I was pretty passive, and I was young. At this point. I don't have fear. I, I, it's such a liberating. Well, and you're successful, right? You're booked. You're booked and blessed. I'm mean, successful. That's nothing to do with it. It has to do with. I'm like, saying you can be choosy with clients. Oh, yes, for sure. You can like, um, yeah. you can work with the people that you really feel connected to help. Sure. Or, you I'm know. Very, yeah, that's why I'm saying I don't take on the sociopaths. It's a waste of time. But um, and they're not interested in in changing. Remember, narcissists don't go to therapists. Don't go to therapy. You got to remember okay. something. They don't ask for help. There's nothing wrong with them. So they're not asking for help. Someone who has some arrogance and entitlement, sure, we've all got a bit of that. That's fine. But remember, if I'm in front of an executive, he wants something. He wants help. He's not saying it that way. He's not framing it that way. But I know if he's in front of me, because no one's forced him into it, that there's an opening. And I just find the chink in the armor and get in there. And what is the? what are these men, men groups? Oh, okay. 
So there's a bit of a backstory here. So I did a men's weekend back in 1996. I was 31. Um, uh, and at the time, there used to be these big events that were like 220, 250 men. It was like a two, three-day event. It's almost like a modern initiation into masculinity. It was a place to really learn about what does it mean really to be a man, all the different versions, right? To be empowered, to, to, to know how to live a higher purpose, to have integrity. Like I went to boarding school at 11. I was... I had integrity and honor grilled into me as a kid. That was not a problem for me. A lot of men have no idea how to show up and have integrity and be accountable. That was not what I needed to learn. I love the fact that it was being taught to men who are basically, you know, just like selfish, lazy, entitled, no real accountability. So there's an aspect of, of that. But the point is, and lots of tools in the men's weekend, lots of tools of how to show up for a woman and be there. And the difference between men and women, which a lot of men don't believe there are differences, there are massive differences. It behooves us to understand that. So it really is about becoming, I would say, what's helpful about this is back then, the men's weekend was about learning how to be safe as a man, I think, to be trusted and to be safe and to be honorable. Then what happened after that is the continuation, the continuity of the work was to get on what's called a men's team, which meets for three hours every week, about 10, 12, 14 men as part of a larger men's division of several teams, a part of a region of several divisions, right? And so I, a couple of years in, because I was super responsible and, and pretty intuitive and, and trusted, I was chosen to be a leader of one of these new divisions. And then that turned into me leading on a division. So I went from leading, you know, 100 men to 600 men. And it was just, and it was all volunteer and it was a passion. I loved it because it was about really recognizing at the end of the day that men are all very similar. Men, men's wounds are similar. Men's aspirations are similar. You can kind of strip it down. And again, the narcissists don't show up, okay? So you're dealing with pretty humble men who want to grow. It's too hard to show up and have the truth thrown at you every week and not want to grow. So that's, that was what that organization was about. I, I, I left the organization a few times. I've actually formed my own men's circle. I moved from the west side to Pasadena three years ago. And, uh, and, and all the men's work is generally on the west side of L.A., for me at least in that time. And so I wasn't going to slap to the West Side East Side. And I, I also had outgrown some of that. You know, when you're with the same men for 10 years on a men's team, you kind of know each other's shtick pretty well. And you've been through the trenches, you've been through amazing things, but you can also get a bit stuck. You can kind of plateau. So I, I wanted a new, fresh challenge. And so I created an, a new men's team on the East Side of men that I'm very connected to, about 10 of us. And it's been amazing. That's been two and a half years that now. So I'm all about creating circles for men. I think it's really important. And it, is, is very valuable because it's a place for men to be vulnerable and intimate and get real. And not well, and men's lack of grasp of their emotions is like deadly and detrimental to society. Yeah, but that's also a myth. I, I, I no, it's to, not. No, it is. It's not true that men don't know how to have feelings or how to express them. Back. It's not true. I've been around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men. It's not true. The difference is men don't... I guess really I'm talking about like domestic violence, murdering spouses, yeah, the big shootings. Like there is like yeah. men not work like. Yeah, but those are sociopaths. If someone's going to be violent with a woman and someone's going to be murdering people, you're not talking about honorable men who are looking to grow. So yeah, those men are a disaster. By the way, there are women killing people too. That's not a masculine thing. There are people out of control with no containment everywhere you look. I'm yes, about, but I'm we're not talking about. personal. We're talking societal, right? Yeah. It's not like there are bad women. Like, that's a given. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying societally, we are, the structures are built where male aggression is 
rampant and well, causing a lot of destruction. Of course, that's always been true. But the reason is because they don't have any mentoring. They don't Correct. Have so I guess I'm saying yeah. it is really important for there to be spaces because yeah. hopefully it'll be like less dead people, right? Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, dangerous men are dangerous. That's why I said, what was the men's weekend about really fundamentally? It helps men become safe. They become trustworthy. A safe, yeah. trusting man is a, is a beautiful thing. A dangerous man is a fucking nightmare, of course. Yeah, but again, unfortunately, the dangerous men are not looking to change. Yeah, and I you mentioned something about like understanding women and the differences and that men sometimes are, don't see or believe in these differences. Right. And something that's a running theme through a lot of like this podcast and conversations is no. me looking around and being really kind of disappointed by my friends' husbands and male partners and what they contribute in the division of labor and stuff like that. Right. And I guess um, working with relationships – what are the common big problems? Is this one, is this a part of the seminar kind of marriage work? I don't know. What, what you ask me, what are, what are the most common presenting issues in relationships? Yes, but then I had like a leading question. I was being like a bad attorney, I guess. Like I'm, sometimes I'm really shocked at the way I see the fathers and husbands around me to the women I love. Yeah. I'm like shocked by their inability to help or see their, what their wives have gone through being yeah. mothers and not be there yeah. as partners. I yeah. have examples of great dudes. Yeah. And so I know it exists, but like, what's the disconnect? Why are men not understanding yeah, women I, better? Like all of that, I guess it's general, whatever you want no, to touch great, on. It's a great question. I, I, I will always come back to modeling. I have a seven and a half year old little boy who's amazing. He's, he's a legend, okay? Uh, and I was at almost 50 when I had it. So I was like, I'm a late bloomer. So my uh, dad was 50 when I was born. There you go. See, it worked out right. So, um, but I also understood at 50, I have been fathering a lot of people, not literally, but I have been in a fathering role. So it was a very natural thing for me to do with a little blob of a baby, right? Um, what I can tell you in witnessing a little boy grow up, as with little girls, is they mimic everything. That's how we learn. They want to mimic and emulate. So I really took that to heart and realized that, and he's still doing it. Um, the men who are clueless or unsafe or shut down or blocked or aggressive have not had good modeling. They don't, they don't have no one to emulate. I can't tell you how many times when we have men show up as guests to these team meetings over the years, um, we'll always ask them, what, what's drawing you to, to showing up tonight? They, quit, they always answer the same thing. I don't know what it looks like to be a man. You know, I don't want to do some macho bullshit testosterone thing. I'm not into that. Um, I just don't know what it looks like because they didn't have maybe good fathering mentors. Maybe they had an absent father. They didn't have a father who represented me. He was an alcoholic. Maybe he was distant, abusive, whatever. He was a womanizer. They just haven't had good modeling. So I think it starts very young. I think if boys have good examples of great teachers and coaches and whatever a mentor role looks like, even a big brother, I think it starts there. And, and, and that's unfortunately missing a lot. That's a societal thing, like you say. The more men who are modeling safety and kindness and in touch with their emotional intelligence and able to talk about feelings, like my kid is incredibly tuned into his vulnerability. It's beautiful. So it's amazing. Like it really touches me because I think I was that when I was little. And because I was British and showed up in a British family in England, I was completely shut down because no one talks about feelings. And I ended up, and then I went to boarding school. It was just like one travesty after another. I just shut down because 
I didn't know what it looked like. And when I showed up on a men's team, honestly, at 31, that was the first time I started to see men being really vulnerable and real and articulate in a way that wasn't some macho bullshit, rah-rah nonsense. And I really appreciated it. It touched me. Because I felt I'm that guy. I just didn't know other men could do that. And then you start kind of just like creating a culture of that around you. And you start building communities of men around you like that. Yeah, a lot of the children and teens in my life are so emotionally in tune and communicative in ways that I'm like impressed by a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's a reason for it because I'm I kind of marvel at my kids in first grade, just about to go in second grade, and I see all these little kids because I've been around little kids the last seven years, right? In a way I wouldn't have done before. They're like an they're an incredible generation, and I think it's because we have learned now what what kids need. I, there, there's, a, there's a wonderful, uh, very smart man called uh, Gabo Mate, who's a French-Canadian. I know about him. No, Gabo, all right. So Gabo Mate was a former psychiatrist who's like, Western medicine's all bullshit, and he's right. He's been into plant medicine. He's like an expert in attachment, addiction. He wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. He's, he's actually brilliant. He's really brilliant. And I, I've been to see him speak a few times. And I was with my, um, my, my now ex-wife, but I was with my wife at the time and our our son was 18 months old and we went to see him speak. And there was a moment that was so validating for us because someone asked him a question about, what do you think about crying it out? You know, letting a baby just wail and cry. And he had two answers. One was, yeah, good luck telling a mama grizzly bear to do that. She's going to rip your head off, number one. And second, his philosophy is we need to stuff our kids filled with love till it comes out of their ears and don't stop. They'll let you know when they're full. And it's so right on because that's what happens. We've learned as a generation of parents Give the kid, not toys. I'm not talking about spoil them with stuff. Forget the stuff. I'm talking about meet them, see them, let them express their feelings, be there for them. And, and it, they become these confident, like magical beings that aren't tentative and shy and, and, and shut down and blocked. And I think there's a whole generation of kids coming through because we finally have found, I think, the balance of what kids need from parents. I come from a generation in England where it's just hands off, you know, you don't say anything, you don't talk about it. It's a disaster. That doesn't help kids. And nor does the smothering and the helicopter parenting, not that doesn't help them either. There's a nice balance and a flow. I think these kids are amazing because we figured out the, the, the balance, I think. And, and I, of course, I'm speaking generally. But I see these magical little kids today. It's unbelievable. They just feel free to express themselves and have feelings and talk about it. And it's beautiful. The boys and girls alike. It's awesome. Yeah. And there's less. I really what I uh, have seen that I like is you don't have to hug that person. You can say no. You can hang out. There's like less. Um, you have to do this because it looks a certain way or it matters to someone else. While you were talking, I kind of got a little emotional because I was thinking about my parents. And so um, they were born in 1938, 1945 in the Soviet Union. I was born in Odessa yeah. and came here young. And so I always felt loved like my parents are obsessed with me probably to a fault like I <laughs> but they were not able to express it I think because of their Stalin upbringing World War II trauma bad stuff but um, and now in their old age I'm trying to connect in new ways because I know my time is limited but it's so uncomfortable because we're not emotionally open like that but they show me love in like food and things and other ways yeah. and it's like yeah it's so it's so important to be vocal and give it because it's like I know I was loved but I've been emotionally stunted and able like not able to connect because 
I was not given it verbally or like affectionately outwardly. Right. You're, you're kind of talking about, you discovered that one of your love, love languages is words of affirmation. You didn't get it. And so, you know, and that's common because that wasn't, that was just not done in, in their generation. I agree with you. And we're all about it now. So I do believe it's both. I think it's the, like my kid started saying, I love you to me and his mom before I even said it to him. It's an instinct. And it's the most beautiful thing. I've never got that from my parents ever. You know what I mean? It's just not dumb. I know I was loved, by the way. So I, wasn't, I wasn't neglected. But it, I know. if you don't have the language, then you don't become comfortable using the language, right? So there's definitely, there's definitely something to like hitting it all on all fronts. The hugging, the touching, the, the being there, the presence, and the words. I would agree. Yeah, it's taken me a long time to put all of that together, but um, it was like a drug girl, girl, <laughs> girl trip, drug journey with like a crystal lady. Yeah. Um, and that was like the first time where I was like really like uh, physically like close to friends. Yeah. Totally. But it was way late. It was like into my 20s, you I, know? Yeah. I totally get yeah. I just, growth takes so much time. It's like so frustrating. It depends. It, uh, only if it takes us a long time to get to the point where the opportunities to grow are presented to us. If you have that as a little kid, it's not that difficult. It's just mm. a So I think for most of us, it took us decades, right, to get to a place where finally we were around the right people that could model how simple it is to communicate and be seen and open your heart, actually. I think it's just, I don't think it has to take years. I think it's a question of how readily available is the modeling of it. I always come back to that. I just think about that. Yeah. And, you know, with executives, common to be narcissist. What is the common thing for like entertainment, Hollywood? What is it? The common presenting issue? Yeah. Uh, I, I, well, it dep- depends on which side of the camera they are, right? So on the executive side, it's uh, it's dog-eat-dog. It's about what have you done for me lately? It's like you can have all the success, but the minute a movie bombs, you're toast. So there's constant worrying that you, are you still relevant? I mean, that's true for the actors and the box office and all the other side. I work with plenty of celebrities. I'm not just executive. I work with them all. The, 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 you know, the, there's a certain kind of narcissism that isn't, narcissistic personality disorder. There's a certain thing, if someone's been given attention all bloody day, they're gonna be a bit narcissistic, but they're not narcissists that don't wanna ask for help. Actors who are a bit narcissistic definitely want to know and talk about themselves and understand more about themselves. They wanna be seen. So I think it really depends. I mean, on, on, on look, there's two levels of this. There's the professional issues and there's the personal issues. The personal issues are the same. What difference is someone's royalty, a celebrity or an executive or a billionaire? They got the same shit they're dealing with. Intimacy, commitment, feeling overwhelmed, not how to communicate feelings, opening their heart. That's universally true. I've worked with enough people to tell you there's no difference. I don't care what part of the world you come from. I've worked with billionaires. I've worked with the most famous celebrities on the planet. It doesn't change anything. I'm very blasé about it because we're fucking people. It's the same stuff, right? So, but... Well, what I've noticed, like, around celebs and stuff, people act crazy around them. Like, they don't have a shot to be normal. Like... It's really wild. So when you come in, you're probably the only person in their lives or these billionaire lives that are saying, actually, this is wrong. Yeah, well, I, I, we like let, allow them to act insane. Like sometimes I see the I, demands that are being fulfilled and I'm like, just say yeah. no. This guy's a dick. Stop. But yeah. no one wants it. Yeah. No I, one wants I, to stop. I agree. I'll give you an example. I had a, a few years ago worked with a very, very, very famous top box office celeb. A, you know, absolute, you know, A-level celeb, right? 
who had like homes in every fucking country and all this kind of stuff. And he was in his early 50s. And he was like a 12-year-old, right? I mean, I mean, literally like a 12-year-old. So I'm sitting with him and he's getting to scheduling and he's got his assistant. So I just do with my assistant. I said, dude, I'm not dealing with your assistant. Deal with me. I'm a man sitting in front of you. It's time you know how to use your fucking phone and set up a schedule in your calendar. Enough with the assistants. And like, like you're not a king, you're a man. This is my first session. And he looked at me like, you're right. I'm like, enough of the bullshit. I'm sitting in front of you. I've got my phone. I don't have an assistant. I'm making my own schedule. You can figure this out. Let's do it. And you know what? He appreciated it. His assistant's overwhelmed with all the shit she's already doing. She doesn't need to scout. I'm sitting in front of you right here. What are you talking about? I'll come back on Friday at two. It's very simple. That kind of stuff, it's not about it's wrong. It's just I'm reflecting. It's kind of like I'm a voice of reason. That's what I believe. I'm not a guru. Yes, I've got a lot of wisdom. doesn't mean to the all-knowing. But I am a voice of reason. And there's no, people are not that reasonable. People are very emotional and project shit all day long. And, and that it's important to reflect the truth back to someone, not just a reality check about how life operates, but the way they're showing up because no one's doing it. As you say, people are kissing their asses, whether it's high level executives, everyone's kissing everyone's ass because they want to be included, but I don't need to do that. So don't come back. I mean, yes, I'm successful enough 30 years later. I, I don't need to work with everybody. If I was 24, I'd probably be afraid to ruffle anyone's feathers and lose them as a client. That's fair. But those days are long ago, 20 years ago. I, I, I love the freedom of being able to be real. And it's not about just being a jerk for the sake of it. It's just being, I always come from the heart, but it's about the truth. And I appreciate it. And it does sting when you get the truth. It can, it can sting, man, because it's like, whoa, someone's seen something in me, but it resonates. If it's totally off, it's probably someone else's projection. Fair enough. But if it resonates, there's something to look, especially if you feel like you're not being judged or shamed for it, go for it. If you feel seen, that's what we're after. I'm loving this, writing some notes. I like the thing, if it resonates, look into it, or it's probably someone projecting and yeah. not to take it personal. Yes. Because people say crazy shit. I love that. Yeah. You mentioned the need to want to be included. Yes. Uh, is that just like the common core thing of everyone? Well, the need to belong is a fundamental human need, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah totally. And, and look, I'll, I'll tell you something about myself, you know, I learned in the men's work years ago. Um, there was this really powerful workshop that we did. I wasn't leading it. I was a participant. And, and the, 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 it wasn't revealed in this way, but the essence of it was, how has one of your biggest wounds become one of your biggest gifts? That wasn't how it was started off. It was just about getting into the wounding. And it was a brilliant epiphany for me. So, for example, I went off to boarding school when I was 11. I have two older sisters. I was out in the freaking boonies in the country. Not because I was sent away as a bad kid. It's just the system in England. Just, were the girls also in boarding school? They were, they were in a different school that they loved because they were they started 16 and they were like the first girl boarders of a boarding school. So they had the time of their lives. I was 11 fucking miserable. But the point is, I always felt left out. No, not abandoned. I felt, I was little. I was three years and six years younger than my two sisters. So whatever happened, I was not cool. I was too young. I was left out of everything. So I always felt very excluded, right? What the gift I have is I'm kind of like the Pied Piper and an enrollment machine. People will follow me anyway because I'm very inclusive. So what I learned is I'm very tuned in, to, especially in LA, that's very clicky. I know that people feel very isolated in LA. It's not a very warm, loving, come in and off the street. We just don't, we're behind fucking gated communities and all that shit, right? So when I have people come do stuff, I'm like, come with me. Not you got to go do this. I'm doing a men's weekend. I'm going to go do a plant medicine ceremony. I'm going to go teach Kabbalah. I'm going to, all the things I've done, 
I'm like inclusive. I'm like a builder of community. Come with me. I'm going this way. Because I know that no one did that for me. And I craved that. Someone saying, hey, you want to come here? I'm like, yeah. No one's asked me. Do you get what I'm saying? So the wound of feeling excluded caused me to be very tuned in to that showing up in other people. And now I'm including them and creating a safe place for everybody to come, whatever I'm doing. That's the community builder in me that I didn't know that's what I did. But that is what I do, it looks like. Yeah. Now, I think the answer is going to be no, but I have to take my shot. Yeah. Any chance you watch The Real Housewives? Yeah, of course. They used to be on my clients half of them. Oh, my God. So I'm a huge Real Housewives Bravo fan. That is what bonds a lot of my friendships to be real with my best friends. It's like my best friend lives in New York. And usually when I go visit, at least one or two days is spent watching the group chats. It's it's really a connector with a lot of comics that are fun. Um, yeah. Any since you know about it, anything you want to talk about the housewives in terms of like reality? Yeah. Their relationships, their needs. Cause these women, I'll ask a more specific question. I just got so excited. Um, these women blow up their lives. They go on these shows, their relationships flail. They fuck up their faces. They end up criminals. They're in jail. Like a lot of them. And I, I noticed this with Bling Empire as well. It's like these billionaires, yet they still want reality TV show fame. Like, why is it not enough to be like these successful people? What's the draw to reality TV in a person? Well, there's a lot of different questions you're asking me. I, I, I know. I so yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, I, I listen. I was on a reality show, so I get it. As a therapist, I was on a show called Marriage Nine One One. That was based okay. on a show called Ninety Nine One One. I was on The Bachelor for three or four episodes as his life coach. I've done all that stuff, right? To me, um, I know the TV world really well on every side of the camera. What what I would say, what I noticed, I only watched Beverly Hills Housewives because you know the people I know. I don't watch the other stuff. Oh, although I'm totally obsessed with Housewives of Dubai. It's fucking brilliant. Okay. But anyway. Beyond that, um, what I notice in the format of what they do is they'll just beat a dead horse of some insult that someone said once, and it will be the through line for a fucking season. It's like so trite. It's such a setup. It's just so loaded. I mean, when I did The Bachelor, for example, I can tell you there was no script. There was nothing I was taught to do. I didn't even have makeup put on me. I went in there. There was just one really fun thing. It was with Brad Womack. And if you watch Bachelor, you're familiar with that. I've watched one season. I had never actually watched The Bachelor. And then suddenly I'm on it. And I'm dealing with The Bachelor like three or four episodes. And it was like, it was a guy who one season, three years before, couldn't pick a woman. He was the first one that actually was a commitment for when you couldn't even pick anyone. And so three years later, they were going to give him another shot. And they wanted to make sure he'd actually done some therapy, had some work. So they called me in because they weren't sure based on the first couple episodes whether he'd actually done the work, whether they were being bullshit. So I started meeting with him to try to get into the kind of commitment issues. Bottom line is at one point, he's going on and on about the dilemma of kissing all these girls. I'm like, dude, I said, then, then, then stop kissing them. I did something like, then take your tongue out of their mouth. And, and, and what happened was the sound guys that they cut, they called me out and said, your battery, your, your mic thing's not working properly. And the showrunner came in and said, we, you can't do that. The essence of the show is, we wanted to kiss as many girls as possible. So it was the only notes I got. I'm like, what do you mean I can't do that? He said, you want me to be real? Uh, um, you know, anyway. So I just redirected the conversation in a different way to have him look at whatever I remember, honestly. But the point is, reality as, as a reality TV is based on relatable, but it's all drama. It's boring. If everything's wonderful and amazing, nobody's interested. So it's about drama. I just know that when it comes to the housewives, and again, I've only watched the Beverly Hills. Um, franchise because most of those I know very well. Um, 
they it's all it's not really that interesting it's just it's literally the theme of the show of the season is a couple of things that were said that then get taken out of context, and they just gossip their asses off it's just all fucking gossip it's the worst knowing but you've got to know they're hamming it up at this point it's how provocative knowing well that'd be a good like soundbite it's just it's just such nonsense but people love drama I don't know about them all becoming criminals and blowing up their lives. Not that's not really a Beverly Hills Housewife thing. Maybe it's the others I haven't seen. But yeah, you know, I mean, I, Erica, Pasadena. Well, come on, that's that's criminal behavior. What what is criminal behavior? Well, we don't know. I don't know. Who knows the reality? What's really going on there? Who knows? I know, but don't you feel bad? Like I don't. I just feel I would be like fuck. Um, I'm going to do good for these people that were victims of whatever happened. To say you don't care about these other people and you only care about yourself and you're eating caviar pie while crying. I'm sorry. A you're a villain. Narcissism going on there, isn't there? What? There is a little bit of narcissism going on there. So it's not about blowing up lives. It's about people who don't, they've lost touch with how other people live. When they're growing up in these mansions, look, I used to go in, I used to, uh, a lot of them on that show who aren't all still in the franchise. Uh, one of them certainly is. But I used to go to the houses to teach Kabbalah. I was a Kabbalah teacher. I used to go and literally teach Kabbalah in the home, right? With like a group of people. And the way they live is just not really plugged into reality. They're not dealing with the shit that normal people do. They did at one point. They weren't born into money. They did, but they lost touch with it. And, and so, yeah, you just start to live in this bubble and everything becomes, it, it's just so, it's such fake political correctness. I, I, I can't stand it. But, uh, forget the house one. I, to me, America is so... It's so overboard with the political grit. It's just, it just drives me crazy. It's just not honest. It's not real. Everything's so framed as a marketing opportunity and PR. And this is hyperbole, yeah. but um, is it possible to be like a good person and rich? Like, yeah, does does being rich fuck you up? Like, no, 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 does no, it? Because no. I know I've heard like power changes your brain chemistry. Like, does money like when you're that isolated, like you're saying, and you lose touch with reality outside of yourself? I, like, I, I would say the answer to your question is it depends on the person's maturity and humility before they become wealthy. If someone has really good grounding and they're pretty humble and they've worked really hard and earned it and they have appreciation of a dollar, they don't become, um, they're not on a power trip. It's not that money corrupts. It has to do with what is, what are their core values and how grounded and how much they know themselves going in to not lose that. That's the truth. I've watched many people have kind of overnight success-ish, not literally, but close to it. And if they're solid, they stay solid. And if they're not, you know, if they're like entitled to, if there's someone that needs a lot of attention on Instagram, they never pop to piss in and they become wealthy, they're just the nightmare. It just depends. But it's not that money or power corrupts. It has to do with the, the core essence of the person before that comes into their life. For sure. Amazing. By the way, including fame, not just money. Fame will fuck someone up if they don't know how to stay humble and grounded and they maintain an inner core of very real people around them that keep them from believing their own bullshit. That's really important. I'm one of those people for that. Actually, I take pride in that. And they appreciate that about me because I'm not, again, it's not about taking a swipe at someone. It's about just keeping them grounded. Someone who's grounded is not going to get over their head in addiction and embezzlement and bankruptcy. It doesn't happen. It's not about being famous. You know, if, if someone's not, having the tires kicked, so to speak, right? And being inspected and someone 
checking in on them, they'll, they'll just literally be their bullshit all the way to the bank. That's what happens. So it's, it really depends on that. It's a great question. I was never asked me that question, but I think that's the answer. Thank you. Okay, so the full the podcast is called Enemies. Yes. And it is um about conflict, relationships, um getting over fights, whatever. Um in all of your experience, yeah. can you touch on the most common th- like what creates conflict the best way? I don't know, whatever your experience has taught you over the past, you know, your yeah. work life. Yes. Yes. In the theme of enemies, conflict, relationships. Yes. I'll tell you, all right, so I touched on it earlier. Look, one of the things I'm big on teaching my clients is the difference between what we call mirroring versus projecting. Okay? So here's the difference. When you look in a mirror, the mirror doesn't have an attitude, an opinion, or a judgment. It just reflects back exactly what's in front of the mirror. When we share our truth with someone, we're sharing our truth about how they're coming across. Projection is adding in our own story or putting our own filter on it. Okay? You have to have the discernment, and this is the tool. Discernment is the tool to know the difference between someone sharing a reflection that's accurately how they're showing up and what they're doing versus a projection, okay? Most people do not know the difference and are projecting their ass off. So here's the clue. This is going to be a really good nugget of wisdom. Ready for this? The clue that you are either doing the projecting or being projected onto is that there's a charge behind what's going on. If someone is charged, they're projecting. There's a wound that's getting activated by something that's way out of proportion with what's happening in the moment. This is where conflict begins. It's all projections. This is any kind of conflict. Because look, shit happens in life. There's there's confrontation and disagreements. But effective confrontation, which is what I teach, and conflict resolution is about staying in your heart, not being judgmental, not raising your voice, not being an asshole, not getting into a power trip, just honestly sharing what's going on and getting to some level of resolution. If two people are doing that, there's no problem. There's disagreement. There's no problem. We can disagree. We're not making each other wrong. We're not taking a shot at someone. We're not like saying something mean. All of that bullshit is projection. It's the answer to everything. There's a lot of projection going on. Most people are doing it. How do we not project? We need to know ourselves well. We need to know who we are. We need to know what's mine and what's not mine. Not like, fuck you, I don't want to deal with it. That's not what I'm talking about. It's people do get charged. People come at you. And it's like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Now, what I, what, if I'm working with a couple and all this drama is happening, I'll be like, whoa, what did you just hear him say? And she'll say something. I'm like, that's not what he said. As a witness, this is what he said. Right? I'll do that all the time. I'll correct the projections. Like, what, what, what is being activated in you that is becoming so intense? Do you, are you aware that's what's happening? Do you hear it in your tone of voice? See your body language? Look here. That's how you start to break it down. So it doesn't matter what it's about. It could be the most... Dishes in the sink, the way someone would fucking shoot their spouse. It could be cheating. It could be, you know, it happens all the time. I'll give you an example. I'm working with a couple right now. They have a little baby who's a year old. They're quite young, you know, like mid, mid-30s-ish. Um, he's like a big gamer. I guess it happened during COVID. He'd become a, obsessed with gaming. And she's like, he'd rather game than do anything else in life. And so she's so triggered and angry when he's gaming because it's as if he's she's got this story going that he's rejecting her and would rather do all of the stuff around. Um, he'd rather be, he, she sees his commitment and passion to be with his friends and game, which is really just decompressing for him. So, but she's so insulted and so angry and so rejected. So, and it's all about gaming. I'm like, it ain't about gaming. It's just that you wish he was able to be as present and committed to you with the same level of passion and enthusiasm he's did with the gaming. 
And then it's and then of course his whole thing is she's so negative and critical. Me and I won't be around her. This is the loop we get into. Does that make sense? It's sort of you, have you been able to help them outside the loop? Yeah, cool. So the point is, it doesn't matter what bullshit it is people are fighting about. Underneath, it's usually around. I don't feel seen. I don't feel safe. I don't feel appreciated. I don't feel heard. On both sides. No, it's always the simplest advice, but it's so hard to do. I, like the core of everything is honest communication, but it seems like the such a hard hurdle everywhere. Well, uh, it's only hard because it's scary. It's very scary to be vulnerable. It's very scary. Look, I've always said, I'll give you an, uh, an image I often share with clients. If you, you know how kids on the East Coast go to the Poconos for summer camp, right? Uh, I mean, I sound like an expert as a fucking Brit. I'm not, but I know that. So imagine that you've got these two little kids want to jump off a cliff, They're, if they even have cliffs in the Poconos. Um, so if both kids jump out equally, it's a beautiful experience. If one kid holds back, they both get dragged down the rocks. It's a horrible metaphor, but you get what I'm saying. If, if I'm the only one being vulnerable, it's terrifying because I'm putting myself out there and you're just being withholding and gaslighting me and making me feel like shit. If both people are vulnerable, Wonderful. doesn't mean it's blissful. It just means we feel understood. I'm not making you wrong. I'm just hearing you. And I'm trying to understand with compassion what your experience is and not make you wrong because it's not the same as mine. We're just trying to understand each other. You can't do that if you're busy trying to prove a point. You just can't do it. Right? So there's some finesse in it. It's not about what's the right thing to do. It's about how do you get to the truth? How do you get to the truth? And the truth is people feel wounded. I know. And repeating these patterns. Yeah. Um, and why do people repeat destructive, self-destructive patterns? Well, because this is a bit psychoanalytic, because there is in the psyche what's known as repetition compulsion. Okay. Our nature is we, we're all about conditioned responses and we like our routines and we get stuck. It's a bit like getting stuck in a groove and a scratch of a record, right? Vinyl. We get caught in these patterns. We have these neural pathways that get. That's why. Why do you think everyone's microdosing their asses off right now? <laughs> what microdosing does is literally form new neural pathways in the brain without the old shit attached to them. It's like a scratch-free record. That's why it works. It's not about getting high. You're not getting high. You're not feeling anything. Wait, I have a bunch of mushrooms right now. So what do you do? You like microdose, and what's the neural pathway? What does it clear up? What what psilocybin does specifically is it forms, and it's microdosing, not. Doing no, I know, I know, I know, I know. What microdosing does over time, several cycles, usually four days on, three days off, there's many different versions of this. I'm just giving you the overview. Is what it does is it starts to form these brand new neural pathways in the brain that are blank slates of opportunity to think positively and creatively. Most of the neural pathways are decades old, old shit, distorted beliefs, conditioned ways of being that are stuck, and we can't get out of it. So that's the repetition compulsion I'm talking about. I'm using microdosing as a metaphor. I don't mean this is what everyone should go do, although it couldn't hurt you. But the point is, we have an opportunity not to do the old shit and start afresh. It's like going from being glass half empty to glass half full. It's that simple. I mean, it takes a minute, but it, that's all it is. So, so my, my, my trite answer about why do we, because it's built into the neural pathways. It's literally built into the neural pathway, which is why it's so important to model and teach healthy ways of being from the get-go. And then that's the pathway we get stuck on, the healthy one. That makes sense? Microdosing is trying to undo all the old shit. It's not easy. It's a lot to undo. It's not easy, but it does work. What happens with microdosing, if you ask anyone who's done it, after two or three cycles, because it takes a while, people just go, wow, I just feel 
productive. It's not like I feel high, I feel amazing. It's not a mood elevator. It shifts your thinking. You feel you feel motivated. You feel productive. You feel, like, stuff bounces off you. It's great. And then you feel better from that is my point. It doesn't make you high. Right? I love that. I'm going to call the episode Therapist Says Do More Mushrooms. Or, JK. <laughs> all day long. Um, wait, I'm going to, you, you have to go. We have to go. You've given us so much. I did have an amazing um, final question. No, I, I don't know if I, I feel like it's gone forever. Bad patterns, doing things, communicating. I don't know. You've really d- given us a lot to think about. Yeah. Anytime. I, I actually used to be typically the kind of person that avoided confrontation like the plague. This is pre-training. Um, I would talk too much shit and to everyone and not deal with the problem. And then it grew and become worse and worse and worse. And so yeah, I, I yeah. actually really, really appreciate when, because I, I, really t- I really call it effective confrontation. There's ways to confront someone like an asshole and be scary and bullying. And I mean, you know, and so you get the last word in, but that's not effective. No, no one's really going to want, like, for example, it's, it's like different leadership styles. There's very dictator controlling scary leaders where people will do what they say, but they won't want to support them to win. They won't, well, they won't want to go the extra mile. There's a way to be a leader where you really feel like you're investing in the well-being of someone you're leading and they want, they want you and your company to do well. You know what I mean? So it, 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 I'm saying it as a leadership metaphor, but there, there is a way to bring out and inspire someone. Even in confrontation, there's an effective way to do it. Someone feels heard, even if you agree to disagree, but you don't feel even made wrong because you have a different opinion. And, you know, fucking strong opinions cause people to kill each other. Differing opinions, I should say. Yeah. Okay. This is what this is. I don't know if it's that great of a last question, but it is um, something I care about. I'm into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was wondering if that's something you think about at all. And like, what do we do for the people? Remember I told you belonging is one of those needs. Well, I was thinking like, what do we do for the people that can't get past like the people that don't have the luxury to fulfill those deeper needs or something like, can something be done? What, what what needs are we talking about? Like someone what, that's working paycheck to paycheck can barely feed their family. Maybe they're skipping a few meals. No. Um, they're in an unhealthy relationship, but they don't have the power to leave because of a certain, like the pressures of life are so much where they have so much else. Like how do we help those people be able to like, I don't know work that. on all of these other things, or this is a luxury to be able to work on this stuff. That's an essential question and a sociological question. I don't know. That's a political question. Okay. I don't know what the answer is. I know that what it comes down to is you're right. If someone is just doing everything they can to provide for their family, they're not really ever going to think about higher purpose. They don't have the luxury. For it. They're not going to be worrying about, are they having an intimate enough relationship? They just want to make sure they can put food on the table, which I totally respect. Right. But that's, that's the phenomenon. I don't know how you solve it. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't. I don't deal in that world. You know, I'm. I'm kind of in a privileged world where I deal with people that can afford my rates and my fees, and people who are motivated and educated enough to understand what the hell I'm talking about. I. I, I don't. I, I never really dealt with that level of society, so I don't think I can speak to it. I mean, I'm very aware it's going on. It's a great question, but I don't know the answer to that. No, I always say I feel grateful that I'm able to discuss these types of things. It means I really have a luxury of like time and energy. So. Thank you for making space for us. Um, This has been um, really amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure.
anytime. Um, I'm up to come back and talk about anything. Thank you. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, doll. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. I hope you learned some stuff that you can take with you through life. Um, if you hated some stuff, comment. If you liked it, comment. Rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Give us attention. Enjoy um, your lives, summer. And I hope you smell some fresh flowers. And call with all of your enemy problems. And we have an advice episode coming soon. So stay tuned. And next week, you guys are you're in for an explosive exclusive. Enemies is a headgum podcast. Anya Konevskaya is our supervising producer. Ali Kahan is our associate producer. Rochelle Chen is our engineer, editor, and producer. And me, Lisa Traeger. I am also a producer. Hello. Thank you so much, Carly Jean Andrews, for the cover art. You are incredible. Jack Krause, thank you for the theme music. I love it. Please follow me on Instagram at GlitterCheese and at Enemies Podcast. Rate and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Tell us about your own enemies by emailing enemiesthepodcast at gmail.com. But really, I'd love to hear your beautiful voices. So email us a voice memo or call in and leave a message at 323-677-1943. That was a HeadGum Podcast.